0: This is the You Can Learn Chinese Podcast, part of the Seneca Network by SupChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and the secret to being smart is knowing when to play dumb. My co-host is John Paston, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of Allset Learning, Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and learns from the mistakes of others who take his advice. Everyone loves Chinese food, but if only there was a way to tie your love for the cuisine into progress of learning the language. Well, there is, sort of. And Today, John and I are gonna talk about what to do and what not to do so that your stomach stays full as your Mandarin levels up. Guest interview is with James Wong, who despite a severe hearing disability, worked hard to overcome the odds and made impressive progress towards learning Chinese. Prepare to be inspired by James' journey. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States.
1: Hey guys, I am John Pasden. I live in Shanghai, China. How's it going?
0: Okay, John, before we kick into today's topic, we have a few reviews. I'll go ahead and lead this off. We have a review from Ann Giles. We've answered a number of her questions here. And Anne leaves us this review. She says, I got tears in my eyes when I heard you recommend to your listeners that they learn Chinese surnames. What decency and humanity there is in speaking each other's names. For me, humanity is a signature feature of your podcast. Even the rants and the raves section are about making things better. Thank you, Jared and John, the man, the myth, the legend, for your kind, comprehensive responsiveness to mine and other listeners' questions. Thank you for helping people learn how to say each other's names how to speak each other's languages and how to understand each other better in these complex times. And Giles. Wow. Well, Anne, that's very nice. That was a very sweet review. I really appreciate your kind words. And she did get one thing right. John Pazden, the man, the myth, the legend.
1: Ah, well, thank you, Anne, for your, for your excellent questions. It's always great to hear from thoughtful listeners, and we're happy to incorporate that into our show. All right, next up is a review from Christina Duffy in great britain via apple podcasts she says maybe just maybe i can actually learn chinese i have now listened to all of the episodes multiple times and yet i still laugh at the terrible jokes jared oh come on not that terrible every episode is genuinely inspiring and just when i think my steamed overstuffed baldza brain is fried Uh, fried outside this podcast seduces me up off the floor of overwhelmed and broken dreams back into the realm of possibility Super informative, super engaging, and highly recommended. I think I would listen to this even if I wasn't learning Chinese. Jared, <laughs> she, she wrote Jared. I it. love that Jared at the end. Yeah, there's no <laughs> punctuation, but it says Jared, but that's not who wrote it. So, or is it? I don't know. <laughs> I promise I didn't write this. Yeah, Jared wouldn't call his own jokes terrible. So, no, no, I just semi terrible.
0: You know. So yeah, bad jokes. No, I've got all new bad jokes. All right. Uh, well, thanks, Christina. We appreciate it. And fried balza sounds pretty good. I could I could go for
1: that. We have that here in Shanghai.
0: Okay, do we have any other uh, reviews? We do. We have one more from Yamurai in United States. Uh, he, she says, you guys rock. Listen to this all in one month, all 56 episodes that are currently out. Excited for future podcasts. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, they must have been listening to what? Like two podcasts a day. That's pretty hardcore. Well, we
1: appreciate your
0: hardcore listenership.
1: Thanks a lot. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, Today we have a very special topic. It's one that it's kind of hard to avoid when you talk about Chinese culture and even Chinese language. But it's one that we have sort of avoided because we've been talking about, you know, how to learn Chinese learning methods. But anyway, today we are talking about Chinese food. How can we make that relevant to learning Chinese?
0: Mm, Fried baozi.
1: Yeah, everything connects, huh? So, um... Maybe you love Chinese food, maybe you just like to eat it, maybe you like to make it. Um, Is this something that can connect to your Chinese studies? And uh, if you know me at all, if you've been paying attention to what I'm saying, I'm a big fan of personalizing learning, making things relevant to you, studying what you care about. Um, So definitely, if there's a way to make Chinese food a part of your Chinese language studies, then yes, you can do it. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's a good idea, what's maybe not so good of an idea, and some other tips.
0: And chances are there is a Chinese restaurant near you. I mean, heck, I live in a small town of 20,000 right now, and we have three Chinese restaurants. And heck, there's even a smaller town that's like only got 5,000, and they have two Chinese restaurants. So I'm going to suspect that even around the globe, I do know of, a, I knew of a family, a uh, Chinese family. They were in Bulgaria and they started a Chinese restaurant there. So, I mean, I'm I certain that there's some Chinese restaurants with real authentic Chinese
1: people in it near you. Okay, but is that really helpful? I mean, what are you gonna do when you go to the Chinese restaurant? Like, especially as a beginner. Let, let me tell you, when I was first learning Chinese, uh, before I came over to China for the first time, uh, my parents were very proud of me, of course. And every time as a family, we'd go to a Chinese restaurant, they'd be like, John, Chinese, come on, say something. <laughs> and I'd just be like, so embarrassed, like, Dad, you know, I'm not just going to be like, Ni Hao at the, at the waitress. Uh, it, it was just so embarrassing. And I, I could barely hold, on a co- hold up a conversation. So, uh, you know, what was the point? What do you think, Jared? Well, you know, John, any practice is some practice, right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. There are some uh, staff of Chinese restaurants that are super encouraging and like anytime they hear someone speaking Chinese, they really want to help and they want to, you know, have whatever simple conversation you have. And then, of course, they're the ones that are just trying to, you know, make minimum wage and like move on to the rest of their job.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I, In fact, in our town, there's one restaurant and it is pretty much they have all Chinese people working in it. And, uh, and the hostess and the waiters, you know, you speak any Chinese to them, they're, they just get so excited about it. But there's another one, and the guy, you speak to him in Chinese, like, yeah, 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 and he replies in English. You know, I mean, he, he's Taiwanese, yeah, and, you know, he's definitely, English is his second
1: language, but he, like, he'll just go right to the English. Yeah, so it really depends. Um, it's not a bad idea to test the waters, but uh, just keep in mind that if you're just going to be stubbornly badgering someone, that it might not turn out so well. But another thing to keep in mind is that Sometimes these China's, sometimes these Chinese restaurants, uh, the people that are staffing the restaurant may be Chinese, but they may not even speak Mandarin, or they might not speak it very well. Like I've been in a few situations in the States. You know, my Mandarin is fluent now, so I can easily hold up, you know, a conversation with people at a Chinese restaurant. But their accent is so thick; it's it's kind of difficult. So if I had been a beginner, I would have been struggling to understand anything that was coming out of their mouths.
0: You know that's a really good point, John. If you go back and listen to episode forty-three, "How to Level Up Your Listening Skills," we had the interview with Eric Majeris and his he married his wife, who's Chinese, and she's from Taishan, and his father-in-law speaks Taishanese. And what was really interesting about his story is that they're like living, in, I think, in Minnesota, and there's like a little Taishanese community up there, and the other restaurant owners speak like Chinese guys speak Taishanese and they don't really speak uh standard mandarin putonghua or if they do it's like really bad. So you got these little alcoves, these pockets of, you know, people that will speak their regional language at times. So it's it's not not a given, right? But you do you run into that. But then of course, you also run into a situation where sometimes they don't even speak Chinese at all. Like uh, I remember uh in one of my restaurants here in our town, it's run by a Taiwanese guy and They have uh, a couple employees that work there and they kind of look pseudo-Chinese, but they're actually Filipino and they don't speak any Chinese at all. So it's kind of a little bit of a fake out. And sometimes I go to them, I'll speak, uh, I might speak some words in Chinese to them and they're just kind of like, give me the blank stare and then like repeat the question or something. (laughs) So you do run into that situation as well.
1: Okay, so to, uh, to sum up, uh, at Chinese restaurants in your hometown, um, it's not a bad idea to try out a little Chinese and see how it goes. But just keep in mind, it, n- it might not go over well. And um, another thing you can do is when you order, you can like, you can maybe try to get them to say the, the dish in Chinese if you already know that they speak Chinese. Um, sometimes they're happy to do that, and it could be a fun little bit of extra practice. Okay. So that brings us to the topic of menus, Chinese menus. I can't get away from this one. So, you know, like a common issue that people might
0: encounter when they're going to a Chinese restaurant. Now, first off, if you're not in China, and most people listening are not in China, you're going to get a menu and it's going to be in English or perhaps your native language, right? So you could just easily order. But if you've ever asked for the Chinese menu and they hand it over to you, especially it doesn't have pictures, it's very different than your Chinese class or textbook <laughs> where they had lists of, you know, like, nyo ro, beef, things like that. It's going to be filled with characters and things that you've never seen, you know, and you might see these combinations of things that you might know, but you don't really, you know, together know what the dish is. Maybe you can point out and you can find meat in there, but by and large, you're, you're largely lost. A lot of people are going to be really lost when they're getting a, a menu that's in Chinese.
1: Right. So this is what I want to explain about uh, Chinese food and Chinese menus. Uh, The Chinese menu is largely kind of its own thing. Like if you want to get really good at reading a Chinese menu, you have to really focus on Chinese menu terms, you know, Chinese dish names, uh, characters related to meat and other dishes. Um, It's not something that that just kind of naturally carries over from your textbooks or whatever. It's kind of like if you really want to get good at reading the news... Well, you can't just read uh, you know, textbooks and graded readers. You actually have to really start focusing on the news. And in the same way, if you want to be able to read a menu, you really have to learn these different terms and these, uh, you know, these menu words.
0: That's right. You're going to find all sorts of characters and learn many things you
1: wouldn't learn otherwise, specialty language. But that's okay. And the good thing about this is that a lot of the menus, like especially in China, actually have pictures. Um sometimes they have English, but um having pictures to go along with those words that you're trying to read, it helps a ton. Um but the o- the other good thing is that a lot of this vocabulary is kind of it's kind of modular like mix and match. Like you have these these two character terms that they're not exactly a word like if you look them up in the dictionary, you you might not find them, but you'll see them appearing again and again in different Chinese menu dish names. So, um putting some effort into like really learning Some of these menu terms, it it actually does pay off from restaurant to restaurant and from dish to dish, even within the same restaurant.
0: You bring up a really good point there, John, is that the concept of modularity, and that's actually a feature really of Chinese in general, but especially on Chinese menus. So if you just learn, you know, obviously the character for meat, ro, you're going to see that in the menu. And if you can know the animal, that helps you decide, all right, well, it's got this type of meat in it. And you're going to find a lot of other characters in there that are maybe vegetables and there's certain radicals that pertain to plants. So you know, if you start learning some plant ones, you can you know maybe piece together what's in the dish. And really, that's what most Chinese uh, menu items, they maybe not have like a specific name. It's more of like the, the name is like a combination of what's in the dish. For example, egg and tomato. All right, that's a fancy chowdan, right? That's one of my favorites. It was just egg and tomato. That's, all, that's it. Yeah,
1: so the dish names are usually pretty descriptive, especially in just the, the typical, you know, like uh, mom and pop type restaurants, uh, not the fancy ones. Some of the fancy ones get crazy with the dish names, so don't start there. Definitely start with the smaller restaurants that all kind of have the same dishes because that kind of repetition, or even if they're not exactly the same, they're similar, that's what helps you learn the vocabulary and I, I want to share a little story here about some of my own experience like I'm kind of a kind of a menu master um, at least at the uh, the everyday level for sure um, and what I did was I had this uh, this local restaurant that I went to and they had the menu on the wall like some uh, Chinese restaurants do you go up to the register the menus on the wall you order uh, you know you take a number or whatever and you go sit down so they don't hand out menus and um, what I did was I took a digital photo of the menu and there was no English, no pictures. And I just took it home and I just slowly like deciphered that thing. And I was like kind of a low intermediate level at the time and it was a lot of work. Um, but I eventually figured out what every dish was. Some of them I wasn't totally sure. So I just order them and eat them. And then I know what they are. (laughs) And, um, and then, and the, at the end, I had a translation of the menu, you know, the characters, the pinyin, and the English. And then I actually gave that, that translation to the owner of the, of the restaurant, and she was so grateful. And she was able to use that with any foreigners that came in. And, uh, and then my friends and I would use it. And it was also kind of fun because some of these Chinese dishes, they don't really have a standard translation. You know, like not every Chinese dish has the, uh, you know, Kung Pao chicken, like some well-known name right so in a lot of cases i just had to come up with my own names and uh, and that was really fun because it became the restaurant's english menu name for the dishes so once i did that once it carried over really well to to most other restaurants you know unless it was a totally different kind of restaurant and uh, that really got the ball rolling and i was able to uh understand menus a lot better after that
0: that's a that's a great tactic and you know this This is going to be really helpful because there are times when you may go to a Chinese restaurant and they do give you an English menu or your native language menu, but it's like the translations are totally off. I remember one time, my first time in China, my friend, he got the menu and one of the dishes was called Wikipedia. So he was like, what's this? Guess I'll have the Wikipedia, you know? So you know, some nice. they're going to take some of these things and just throw it into Google Translate, and there's going to be some copy and paste errors. Like I, I think that's what happened with the Wikipedia. I'll, I'll have I'll have two Wikipedias, yes. But you know, you're going to have some situations like that. So you know, obviously, learning Chinese is definitely going to help you in making sure you really kind of know what you're getting.
1: Oh, and I do want to mention um something that some of our more suspicious listeners might be thinking about. Like, have you ever gone to a restaurant and then? They they don't give you the Chinese menu. They only give you the English menu. And you're just kind of like, are these prices the same? And I just want to say, in my experience, they always are the same. Yeah. Like They yeah. act so yeah. suspicious, like, no, don't look at this Chinese. You'll tire out your brain. Like, I'm trying to be super hospitable and give you only the, the English menu. And it just seems so suspicious, but it's almost never a scam. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that if, if anyone's doing that, they're putting different
0: prices on the English menu, it's going to come back to bite them because there's going to be someone, right, who speaks Chinese
1: or can read Chinese and knows what's up. I'm like,
0: wait, hey, what's going on here?
1: Has that ever happened to you, Jared? Have you ever felt like you got scammed by different prices on an English menu? Nope, not once. Not once. All right. So, um, you know, sometimes trusting humankind
0: actually pays off. Now there's another aspect as well that sometimes you know I've talked to people and they're like oh yeah I have, I love Chinese food you know I'm like oh really what what do you enjoy like orange chicken that's my favorite you know I love that Chinese and you know I love getting the lemon chicken and you know sweet and sour sauce you know this type of stuff and and you know what hey I gotta say I love that food it's actually really good uh, but you know I sometimes I kind of little cringe you know in the back of my mind but hey you know they they haven't lived in China or they haven't been there and I say well that's you know not actually authentic Chinese food. You know, you you may be eating uh American Chinese food or European Chinese food or whatever that's like suited to fit your local taste and what the local
1: population expects Chinese food to be. Yeah, so if you do go to China, remember to keep uh, those expectations in check. Like I've had a few friends come over and they're like, "Why have we never ordered beef with broccoli?" And <laughs> you, you you can get beef with broccoli, but it's definitely not on the menu of every restaurant. It's not a super common dish. It's something that Americans like.
0: I remember my first time in China, I went to some restaurant and and it was had some sort of like rice bowl with some uh, chicken or something on it. And they had this little pot and I looked at it and it looked like a, a bit of it was kind of a little light, slightly clear, but syrupy and it looked kind of like an oranges tint to it. And I'm thinking, oh, hey, great. Sweet and sour sauce. So I take this stuff and I just pour it all over my bowl, mix it in with the rice, <laughs> mix it with the rice, take a bite, and it was not sweet and sour sauce. Nope, it wasn't. It was kind of like a spicy hot oil, and I'm not sure which actually oil it was. But uh, yeah, that really uh, was an eye opener for me and realizing, whoa, wait a second. Uh, maybe what I've been used to uh, where I've grown up is not exactly what I'm going to get here in China.
1: Yeah, so I, I advise you to kind of look at what is available in China when you come over and not try to carry over your expectations from your home country. Like, don't try to figure out how to ask them about the fluorescent orange sauce because there isn't any. There's just that spicy sauce.
0: But I will say, John, something that is nice, that if you are familiar with Chinese cuisine... And, you know, you spend a little time in China. You're familiar with some of the dishes. There are times in some restaurants where you can ask for special things in Chinese that may not be on the menu and they may be able to make them. So, for example, I've been to this one restaurant. My brother lives in San Diego and we were down there for Christmas uh, a couple of years ago. And he took us to a Chinese restaurant. And, uh, and I asked him if he had Xiaolongbao. And he's like, yeah, we've got it. Wasn't on the menu, but they went back there and they made Xiaolongbao, which is awesome. They're like, they're, I guess, translation a little bit more like, well, it's not translation, but what they are, is kind of like little soup dumplings and they're so good. They're loving this kind of a Shanghainese thing. And uh, so made them and I got to get them for the family. Uh, We hadn't been to China for a long time. So the kids were like, yay, they're so excited. So, you know, if you do know some things and it's like a real Chinese restaurant, they
1: possibly at times can make some special food for you. For sure. And even in China, like I remember doing that, um, especially in my early days in China when I, when I was less uh, lazy is I like, if I went to the restaurant at a time when they weren't busy, I would just ask them, Hey, can you make this like this, that dish that you make with like those pieces of chicken where there's just like so many bone fragments, like all throughout the (laughs) meat. Would it be possible to use just like chunks of chicken with no bone and they're like, oh, that's not going to be good. And I'm like, well, just just humor me. Can you do it? And they'll be like, okay. And they do it. And oh, man, so good. <laughs> um, so you can sometimes get them to customize the menu in China and in the States as long as they're not too busy. Well, in the States, they might just be giving you some food off the, the Chinese menu, right?
0: That's true. That's true. So I'm still looking for la Mien, which I haven't quite been able to find that here stateside. It takes some very
1: special ingredients to get it done right. But, man, I'm still looking. So another thing, um, if you're into Chinese food and you come to China, all right, great, you're going to be ordering lots of food. But uh, one thing that you also want to make sure that you do while you're here is spend some time at a bookstore looking at the cookbooks. Um, And the reason is because some of the Chinese cookbooks have a great format. I've seen ones where, you know, you have your dish, the name is in Chinese. I've seen a few that even have the name in pinyin uh, under the characters. Uh, without tone marks but still just having pinyin is like a huge help and then for the dish of course you have a nice color photo for what the final dish looks like but i've seen cookbooks that have a a photo for every step of the prep Mm. so you have like chinese explaining what to do uh for each step of the prep but to have that photo is so nice um so you'd be surprised at uh the quality of some of these cookbooks but there's just a huge variety So if you're into Chinese food, put aside some time to browse these cookbooks because there's so many, there's so many kinds of food and there's so many formats. Um, It's really worth your time. You know, and something, John, I think it's important
0: to note here is that, you know, China, it is the biggest country in the world. There's 1.4 billion people there. And if you think about even your home country, how diverse the food can be from, you know, one region of the country, even one area of a state or a province to another, same thing with China. So... Why we might say, "Hey, this Chinese food." Chinese food is so diverse, and from what I've actually noticed is most of the Chinese food that's made it more international, at least here in North America, it tends to be have a little bit more of a Cantonese slant on it because most of the early immigrants were from Hong Kong, and so if you go down to Guangzhou, down in that area, you find a little more similarities from the food there than what you might be used to in your kind of your home country. But, uh, man, there is so diverse, one of my favorite types of food is Xinjiang Thai. so that's out from Xinjiang province, it's way out west, I uh, love that type of food, and yes, food that's up in the north, Dongbei, and, you know, for example, like up in Dongbei, they don't even eat rice, I mean, that's, that's not part of their normal, I shouldn't say they never eat rice, but they don't normally eat that, it's more of things that are based on grains and wheat. Uh, rice is mainly something that's coming from down South. So there's some things like that, which you may not, you know, consider. And I've even been to some small towns and I say, Hey, what's your, what's your some specialty here in the town? I've gone to some small restaurant or someone was taking me around and I've had some very unique foods that I have not tried anywhere else. Uh, and I have not seen anywhere else in, in China. Uh, when you, when you really kind of explore and you get to get around the country, so it's a very big country and extremely diverse cuisine And there's no way even one book
1: could seem to capture all of it. Yeah. So that's definitely going to affect the books that you're looking at. Some books will be devoted to certain cuisines and others will be more like everyday dishes. I recommend if you're still learning the the vocabulary for everyday dishes, find something that's focused on that and not some like super regional type cuisine. Um, But also keep in mind that when you're trying to talk to people in Chinese restaurants, whether it's in your home country or in China, the... um, the region of the food that the restaurant specializes in can be a factor there. Like if you're uh if you're in a you know a Hong Kong style restaurant, well they might speak Cantonese. Um if you're in your home country and it's a Hong Kong restaurant, they might only speak Cantonese and not Mandarin. You know, it's all it's all it's all part of it. Okay, and then finally if you're you're doing pretty well on the Chinese food or at least on the basic words and some of those verbs, you know, Chinese has a lot of verbs meaning to cut or to chop for food prep. You're doing pretty well on that. Another thing that can be really cool is to go onto a Chinese video site and look at some Chinese cooking videos. Um, there's a huge variety of these. Uh, you know, Tons of Chinese people love to cook. It's so easy to make a video of you making your own dish and there's just tons of them online. And um, I, have, I have a client uh, at Set Learning. His name is Will, he lives in Australia. Shout out to Will. He loves to cook. Uh, he cooks with his Chinese friends. Um, he watches Chinese cooking videos all the time. It's been great for his Chinese. And not only that, but as a project to improve his Chinese, he even took his own Chinese cooking video and put that online. And, man, Chinese people love that. They love to see, like, well, how do foreigners make this Chinese dish? Um, so it's great for his Chinese, great practice, and great point of cultural exchange. Are you into cooking videos, Jared?
0: Oh well, there are cooking videos everywhere. Honestly, you know, one of the foods I really like to make is Indian food. and so I, I, I do watch some some of those. But uh, you know after it's kind of one of those funny things. after being in China for so long, we had a, an ai, you and know, a maid, if you will, and she often would make dinner for us. and so I got to see how they made the food. And I somehow I, I also regret a little bit that I didn't pick up a little bit more. My wife did. Um, but there are so many wonderful dishes out there. And, you know, on, on, a, on a note on this, guys, is that there are so many ways to make a single dish. If you just even think about the different ways to make spaghetti and the different like, spices that can go into a spaghetti sauce. Uh, there's just almost like seemingly infinite combinations or a hamburger or whatever it is. The same thing is in China. So if you come across something you maybe maybe I don't like this so much. Well, you might want to give it a try, uh, you know, at a different restaurant. Or uh, you know, some everyone has a different way of making something. But there is just a wonderful world of one cuisine out there that can be so flavorful and like abundant
1: and we'll say feng fu, right? A very, very abundant flavors to you for you. I'm glad you brought up the whole the whole IE thing, like the housekeeper, because that can be um, very helpful for Chinese too. Like I've uh, I've had people that. Hire an IE and she thinks she's going to cook or you might, you know, look for IEs that cook. But when they come to your house, you actually get her to teach you to cook. And so you can find, you know, you like Sichuan food. Great. Find an IE from Sichuan who makes Sichuan food. And you're paying for her time. Um, and and as long as you can understand her, which is not always uh, easy, uh, you can actually get someone like this to teach you. And of course, not everyone will be good at teaching and maybe some of them just prefer to cook themselves. But I have friends who have uh, done really well with this trick. Uh, also, myself, I'm not much of a cook. Um, it's just not really a passion of mine. But sometimes I help with food prep and um, just talking to the cook about you know what the ingredients they're using is, you know how you do this, how you do that, can, can be some good language practice. And it's a bit less intense from teaching, you know, know, having them teach you to cook or trying to watch a video. So, um, I think that pretty much covers all the points we wanted to, we wanted to cover about Chinese food and Chinese. Uh, remember if you're not in China, test the waters out, but try not to be uh, too annoying. It can definitely pay off if you get lucky. Um, and then if you come to China, you have lots of experimentation you can try. You definitely want to look at books. You can look at videos. And you can talk to Ai about making food as well.
0: All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor, and our sponsor is
1: Mandarin Companion Breakthrough Readers. Uh, today, we want to talk about our book, which is related to the theme today, which is cooking Chinese food.
0: Oh yeah, and that is the Misadventures of Zhou Hai Chung. a story about a young boy who his parents own a restaurant, and he's a little misadventures helping them out. He makes a dish at times, and people seem to think it's gonna be really popular. He makes,
1: and uh, it's a it's a really fun story. So if you're one of those people that really connects with this whole Chinese food topic, and you're getting close to being able to read a 150 character breakthrough level graded reader, this could be the one for you. It's also broken into three short stories, so it makes it even more manageable to get into as a first one.
0: So that's the Misadventures of Zhou Haishang. You can go out and find it today. You can find Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books. It's a breakthrough, Mandarin companion, graded reader using only 150 basic characters.
1: Go out there and get it today. Let us know how you like it.
0: All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave?
1: I have a rave today. Uh, actually, I want to link in the show notes to an old blog post of mine. But um, it's about some of the vegetables that I discovered for the first time You know that I really ate very much or maybe just had never eaten before, you know, after coming to China. And um, the one that I want to talk about specifically today, in English, apparently it's called Celtus. You know what this is, Jared? Kel- Celtus? Celtus? Uh, kelp? I don't know. what. What is that? No, no, no. In Chinese, it's wosun. It's like this, uh, this green kind of translucent thing that often gets sliced up. Um, you can make it lots of different ways. Anyway, if you click on the show notes, there's a blog post that has pictures and stuff. I love that stuff; it is so good. But I had never had it at all outside of uh, China, and now I just eat it all the time. Well, sounds tasty. All right, Jared, what do you got? Rant or rave?
0: All right, today I have got a rave. And, uh, it pertains to our topic today. There is a great YouTube channel out there that I think if anyone's interested in like authentic Chinese cooking, you should check it out. It is called Chinese cooking demystified. Now this is a couple, uh, their names are Steph and Chris, uh, the, the girl, she is from Guangzhou. They live down in Shenzhen and Chris, I think he's from, I think he's from America, but anyway, they actually like dissect different dishes from all around China and have very granular, in-depth explanations on how to make specific Chinese foods, like on an authentic way. And if you look at it, it's, it's really good. They'll go through even, you know, a big thing about, you know, making the right dish the right authentic way is going to be the ingredients. So they will even dig into that and acknowledging that most of the people watching are not in China. So they'll talk about, hey, if you can't find this, You can try this, or this is might be the closest thing. So it's a great walkthrough and a guide on how to make things that are really good. Just give you an idea. They have some very basic, you know, like uh, videos like you know stir fry one hundred and one, you know, or Chinese ingredient guides. They'll even show you how to make like you know oyster sauce from scratch. But they got great things like how to make gen beans, different types of Cantonese black pepper beef. So it's some really good stuff. They'll even John. They even have a video out there on how to make lanjo mie, which is, uh, I guess the translation no. would be stretched noodles. Yes, it takes a very specific ingredient to make them stretch as long as they do. Those and are you,
1: called you know, hand-pulled noodles, Jared. That's yeah, what we, we say always. in English. Oh,
0: well, I, I've, I've seen a few, hand-pulled, stretched noodles, whatever. But for me, it's always going to be lamian, right? That stuff is like the best thing.
1: But this uh, video channel is only about uh, cooking, like there's no Chinese words that you're gonna learn from it. Is that right? Uh, well, they do like say Chinese words. It's all in English, but they
0: do have like some of the dish like in Chinese characters. So if you are in a Chinese restaurant, you know maybe if you learn those characters, you might be identified on the menu, or you know exactly like how to say it in Chinese to uh, the waiter, and you might be able to order exactly what you're looking for. So it's it's really cool. And John, I gotta ask, do you do
1: any cooking? Pretty much never, uh, occasionally. I can cook, but I just don't really enjoy it, so I I let people who enjoy it do it, and I cook when I have to.
0: So you're gonna be one of those guys, come back to America someday, lived in China most of your life.
1: Can you make some Chinese food? Uh, I'd be like, yep, but I choose not to. (laughs) Actually, I did cook when I first came to China, and so I've I've had that pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> and now I let other people have that no, no,
0: John, fang bian mian does not count, okay? No,
1: <laughs> no, nah, nah, I made lots of different dishes. Nothing super complicated, but just the, the everyday type dishes.
0: Yeah, a- adding an egg to fang bian mian also does not count.
2: Yeah, that's not what I did. So my name is James Wong. My Chinese name is Huang Rue Hong. And I've been living in Taiwan for five years now. I've been studying Chinese for about three to four years. I think one of the reasons you're interviewing me is because I'm actually profoundly deaf. And despite that, I still decided to learn Chinese, which is considered one of the hardest languages even for sort of normal uh, listening people.
0: Why we do not get to choose many of the challenges we face in life, we can choose how we respond to them. James' story reminded me that often the greatest limitations are those we face in our own mind. Stay with us. Now, James, let's start with a big question here. Why did you start learning Chinese?
2: I think one of the reasons for me was a heritage reason. So my dad is actually from Hong Kong. He doesn't speak Mandarin. Though he only speaks Cantonese. But one of the reasons I never actually learned Cantonese either, I grew up purely monolingual, is because of my hearing disability. And so when I was born, I was three months premature. So I was born around six or seven months. So I had a lot of issues with my body and I was injected with antibiotics, which affected my ears and caused my deafness. So at that point, my parents kind of knew that I had quite a bad hearing loss. To what degree they didn't know, but obviously it affected my childhood. And they were super concerned that I wouldn't even be able to speak English. Oh wow. So so they were thinking, you know, we're just gonna just focus on English. We just want him to have quite a regular life in a normal world and we're not gonna put Cantonese on him. It would be far too much. So just English.
0: James, I actually want to hear about this a little bit. So mm. explain to us, like, all right, so you know, most people, you know, I hear, oh, you know, you say I'm deaf. Mm. That you know, I my inclination is to think, Oh, well, you can't hear. But obviously, we're having this conversation, you're hearing me, so talk a little bit about like wh- where you are on that scale.
2: So I guess if you want to put a percentage of my hearing loss, it's maybe on 80 to 90% hearing loss. But I wear hearing aids, which kind of boosts the remaining hearing that I do have. So basically, if you are 100% deaf, you have nothing to boost. So hearing aids will do nothing. But if you have a little bit of hearing, you can then amplify that sound to make it 100%. Although it isn't the same as normal hearing because the human brain obviously works very differently to machines and human brains are able to pinpoint sounds or focus on things and take away sounds that they don't want to hear. So for example, if I'm in a a very noisy environment, everything is amplified. And Mm. it's very hard for me just to focus on the person in front of me. Now, luckily, technology has improved over the last 30 years. I'm 32 now, and I've been wearing hearing aids since I was about two years old. So luckily, they are improving. AI is able to sort of work out, if you like, what it wants me to hear and what it doesn't want me to hear, but it's by no means perfect. And also I rely on lip reading, Mm -hmm. which means I can look at lips and I can work out more what people are trying to say. And it's a lot harder in this day and age when people are wearing masks.
0: Mm, I never thought about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's just completely removing one of the ways that I communicate, if you like. So especially in Taiwan, where everyone's wearing masks because it's a very Asian thing to do, it makes it even harder for communication in Chinese. But yeah, going back to what you said, the normal sort of deaf stereotype, if you like, is that they can't speak and usually they rely on sign language. And if they can speak English, it's very I wouldn't say broken, but it doesn't sound native if you like. But the reason I didn't go down that route is because my parents wanted me to be in the mainstream world, if you like, not be in the deaf world. And so when I was younger, they attended one of these conferences and they saw a deaf person stand up on stage, much like myself now and speak to the crowd. And my parents were like, well, you know, if she can do it, my son has a chance. And so they kinda pushed me through speech therapy. My mum stayed at home and drilled vocabulary, spoke to me all the time and made sure I was listening. Went to see the doctor, went to support groups, stuff like that. Obviously all things that I don't remember. But I think my parents went through a lot to make sure that, you know, I could have the life that I'm having now. And I'm I'm pretty sure if I was in the deaf world, which isn't to say it's a bad thing at all, it's just a different choice. I definitely wouldn't have worked the jobs that I've done. I definitely wouldn't be in Taiwan, and I most certainly wouldn't be here speaking to you.
0: Wow, that's really interesting and amazing to hear that. But I kind of, at what point did you start feeling that inclination? Like, hey, I, I want to start really learning Chinese.
2: When I was eighteen years old, I started working as an aerospace engineer for a company called Rolls Royce. I worked there for a number of years until I kind of realized it wasn't my true passion, being an engineer. And I wrote this bucket list. And this bucket list included things like going to the Taj Mahal and celebrating Chinese New Year in Hong Kong. And it just had a whole list of things I wanted to learn. And one of the things I put on that list is to learn Chinese. And it was partly because of my heritage. Like, I've seen my dad just speak this cool language with his half of the family. Although it was Cantonese, it was still considered, like, Chinese to me, right? And I can see him writing the characters. and. You know, we celebrate Chinese new year, but it wasn't proper. And it was like 50% of my sort of culture. I didn't really know it. I didn't really understand it. And I feel language is part of that as well. So at age 25, I quit my job. I traveled around Asia for a year. I ticked off everything on a bucket list, except for learn Chinese.
1: Hmm. So at that
2: point I was like, I don't want to go back home. I'm going to find a job in Asia probably a Chinese-speaking country, and I'm going to learn Chinese. And ultimately, I fell onto Taiwan, got a job here teaching English.
0: How did that happen? How did you end up in Taiwan working there?
2: I think I just weighed up my options. I kind of saw the companies that were offering me jobs. A lot of the jobs in China were from Beijing, and I was a little bit concerned about the air quality there. Also, because my dad is from Hong Kong, they use traditional Chinese characters and China doesn't, Taiwan does. So again, that was another reason why I chose Taiwan. There's not really so much a big reason as to just lots of little reasons.
0: So then you move to Taiwan, you're teaching English, but I mean, I know, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people who go to China or Taiwan to teach English, but they never end up learning Chinese. So what was your story? What happened there?
2: Oh, so before I went there, I was listening to lots of like little learn Chinese podcasts and stuff like that. So I picked up a little bit here and there. I was a bit ambitious, I guess the word is, that I was thinking within a year of living in Taiwan, I'm going to be awesome at Chinese. You know, it doesn't (laughs) matter that I'm working full time, that I'm not going to school. Surely the environment will be enough alone.
0: I had the same thoughts when I moved to Shanghai.
2: (laughs) Yeah, after a year, I kind of looked back on myself and I was like, I can say some stuff, you know, I can order my coffee and say something to impress the locals. But I certainly wasn't anywhere near conversational. So I was a bit ambitious in that regard. And after a year of teaching, I decided to go full time into learning Chinese at a language center.
0: Okay, you started to really learn Chinese here, but being profoundly deaf. How was that affecting you in trying to pick up this language?
2: It's hard to say, really, because I don't. I've never been not deaf to compare it to. But I feel like people can pick up language and words more easily from conversation than I can. For example, if I hear a sentence that I completely don't understand, it's really hard for me to pick out words and maybe how that word's pronounced. The way that I learn new vocabulary is I need to see the pinyin. I need to see some sort of way that tells me how I pronounce that word. Even now, I've learned Chinese for a number of years. I have Chinese teachers. When I learn a new word, I'll say to them, can you show me the pinyin? Just so I'm really clear in my head, there's a lot of words in Chinese that sound very similar, Mm -hmm. maybe to English speakers, maybe to my ears. And even the other day, I asked somebody, what's this word? And I thought they said Da to me, D-A, Mm Da. But they actually said Dang, D-A-N-G.
0: Ah, yeah. I was in a
2: restaurant at the time, so it was a little bit noisy. But to me, I was completely sure they said Da to me. And I searched Da in my phone. I couldn't find it. And in the end, I just wrote the character in my Pleco app. And it came up as Dang. And I was Mm. like, okay, I really didn't hear that ending sound. So there's just sounds to me that I don't hear. So stuff like Jan and "jang."
0: That's what I was thinking. I'm like, that's hard for me. Sometimes they call it the finals.
2: And even English, I have that issue. Not as much now because, I mean, language is very contextual, right? If someone says something to you and you don't catch one word, you can work out what they said probably from context.
1: Mm-hmm. For
2: example, if someone pointed over there and said, you know, pass me the book, blah, blah, and they pointed at a book, you know, they probably said book. But <laughs> in Chinese, when you don't have that full range of fluency filling in the context can be a lot harder.
0: Yeah. So you, you were just kind of like casually learning, it sounds like, but then you got serious. So talk about that experience a little bit. What were you doing to learn and what was the experience like?
2: I guess I'm a person where I'm either all in or not at all. So when I said I wanted to learn Chinese, I was fully committed. I went to the language school which did I think it was three hours a day for five days a week plus homework, we were learning around 10 to 20 new characters every single day for the Tingxie.
0: How about you tell us what Tingxie is for those who are not familiar with it?
2: So Tingxie is basically dictation where the teacher will say, tomorrow I'm going to test you on these 10 or 15 characters and you better memorize them and the opinion and the tones and how to write the characters. Yeah. And you get tested on that every day, which is, it's a lot. And also in my class there's there's Japanese people, there's Korean people, there's Vietnamese oh. people. Oh that's yeah. <laughs> I was the only English speaker, I think. Oh that's tough. You're like at the bottom of the class right away. <laughs> <laughs> so these Japanese people, they probably don't even look at the characters for Tingsea. And there's me every night on the verge of tears, like, why can't I remember how to write this character? <laughs>
0: I'll put this in here just for the listeners. So that ting is a very traditional Chinese thing. That's what they do in elementary schools for L1 learners or first language learners. So a lot of them, they try to do that for L2 learners to try to help you learn characters. But uh, I I got to say, John and I, we're not big advocates of that. And you could kind of hear little James, your story. little bit, like, <laughs> it's so hard, right? Okay. Someone who's Japanese, right? They already know like 900, 1,000 characters already, right? But for us... Yeah non-Asian language speakers, it can be very challenging.
2: I mean, I remember when I was in elementary school in England, we had spelling tests, and I think we have five new words every week, you know, which is fine, it's your native language. But yeah, Chinese, 15, 20 new characters, or even words every day. It was a lot. It was a lot. So yeah, at the language center, the first three months, I was fine because I'd already sort of self-taught Chinese for the first year. So a lot of it was review, a lot of it was just learning how to write. So I didn't have to split my attention too much. The second three months, I fell way behind. Suddenly the teacher only spoke Chinese. Suddenly the grammar I'd never seen before. There was lots of words I'd never come across before. And I felt like I'd bitten off way more than I could chew. And that's when it started to hit me that my hearing loss was going to be a disadvantage for me. You know, my classmates were hearing what to teach said fine and they were just going way ahead of me. And I just felt behind. And sometimes I just felt so sad. I was like, I don't want to go to class. You know, everyone's going to be better than me. And I'm trying so hard, but it's just so hard for me. So after six months, I stopped going to the the language center and I started going back to self-studying. I wanted to review the second semester again. So for about three years, I kind of did that on and off. I would go to classes for three months. Definitely not as intense as three hours a day. I maybe did one or two hours a day. And then I'll take some time off and, and self-study. Both have their pros and cons. Like you say, the classroom-based learning is good because it gets you out of bed and into class and makes sure that you're learning.
0: It's the discipline, right?
2: <laughs> right. But then it can be hard. And then the self-study and you kind of study the vocabulary and you watch the TV shows and you do what you want to do. And it's more interesting, but then it's so easy to not do it. You know, no one's pointing (laughs) a finger at you or telling you to do your homework. And I'm quite competitive. So having classmates, I feel like I've got to compete with them and be as good as them, if not better. But when it's just by myself, I can get lazy.
0: What did you find was working best for you? And maybe some of the times where you had some breakthroughs or really made a lot of progress.
2: I would say one thing I kind of, beat myself up about was changing my learning method quite often but looking back that's just how I learned so I used to berate myself and go you know why am I constantly changing why can't I focus on one thing I would improve so much faster that's what normal people do and that's how people learn they just do one thing and just do it for a long time and they get good and whereas I would you know maybe use this app for a month maybe read one of your books for a month and then I would watch this tv show for a month and looking back I think that's okay I think that's fine I think variety is the spice of life and you don't want to burn out. You know, I'm going to be learning Mandarin for a long time, I imagine. (laughs) It's not an easy language. So you don't want to get burnt out. And I can see maybe some people have done that. They've got this really strict schedule and I'm going to do Pleco and I'm going to do flashcard apps and I'm going to watch this amount of TV shows every single day. I think that's just an easy way to not learn Chinese, to be fair.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought this up because it's really true. It's like at the end of the day, are you learning, right? And is it working for you? And if you're jumping all over the place, trying a lot of different things, but you're learning, hey, it's effective. Yeah, it works. Tell me a little bit about what kind of opportunities started opening up for you when you started really getting some Chinese proficiency under your belt.
2: So in Taiwan, I do a number of jobs. I'm an English teacher, I'm a YouTuber. I'm a model and actor, and I also teach parkour. And I teach parkour classes 90% in Chinese, especially with the kids, because most of the kids here don't speak English. So when I did it, I felt, wow, like my Chinese is actually good. It wasn't that good, but it was enough to communicate to people how to be safe and what move to do. There was this one time we have a move in parkour called a 360-degree jump. Mm-hmm. which in Chinese translate exactly the same. It's 三百六十度. Mm-hmm. So degrees, right? Mm-hmm. But in English and in Chinese, degrees and du also means refers to temperature. So we were practicing this movie. We have a whole bunch of kids. The kids are around five years old. And every time they would do a jump, I will tell them how many degrees they actually turn. Because kids are like, oh, yeah, I did it. And I'm like, no, you only jumped 90 degrees. I'll be like, Yeah. So every time they jump, I'll be like, 九十度. 一百八十度. 三百六十度. And then there's one kid, I said to him, I said 180 degrees. And he turns to me and looks at me and goes, teacher, do I? was like, teacher, it's very hot. And <laughs> <laughs> um, That's cute. That's just kids being kids. And uh, I don't know about you, but in Chinese, when I hear stuff like that, and I'm like, oh, why did you say that? And then it'll click. It's hilarious. When something in Chinese that's funny clicks with me, I just laugh so hard.
0: <laughs> that's so funny. I did see some of your videos. You're doing modeling. You're doing some acting. So, like, how did you even get into doing that? Was your Chinese important?
2: I think a lot of people just suggested it to me. They are like, oh, you should try modeling. You should try acting.
0: And for anyone here, you can't see James. He's like an Adonis, like, you know, carved out of marble. (laughs) Just
2: speak for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so in the East, it's a lot easier to apply to these sort of things. You just go on Facebook groups and people are like, I need a male model who can do XYZ. So I just started applying to all these jobs. The first one I did was a parkour job, actually, which was quite convenient because I don't think there were many Westerners in Taiwan who could do parkour. As to how Chinese helps, I wouldn't say it helped directly since there's usually someone on their team who can speak English. But it definitely makes things a lot smoother. Especially a lot of the directors, they don't speak great English. Or they will just say really vague English. They'll be like, oh, look cool, look handsome. Look over there, and it's just like, what does that mean? But when they speak Chinese, it's a lot more clear what they actually mean. So, especially when you're on set, everyone's on a timer, they maybe got the whole day to film that one job. Being able to communicate in Chinese, being able to ask them questions in Chinese, and them just telling me straight away what they want, just makes things a lot smoother, a lot more stress free for everybody. I enjoy the fact that I can speak Chinese, I'm in Taiwan, it lets me. It just makes life a lot smoother compared to people who are having to rely on their Chinese-speaking friends or their girlfriend or whatnot. You know, I can go to the immigration office, I can go to the bank, you know, just everyday normal stuff. life is so much easier when you can speak Chinese. Even at a low level, it helps.
0: So your father, he's from Hong Kong speaks Cantonese, right? Now you're learning Mandarin. I, how has that impacted your relationship with your father or even any of the family members you have on the Hong Kong side?
2: So none of them actually speak Mandarin at all. And I think originally my dad was a bit confused why I wanted to learn a language. And maybe that's quite an, an Asian thing. It's like, you know, why well, you want to learn a language, just work hard and make money and blah, blah, blah. However, one of my plans was to learn Mandarin to sort of maybe B2 level which is around HSK4. And then I wanted to learn Cantonese. And the reason I wanted to do it in that order is because I feel Mandarin is, is more standard at the moment. There's a lot more resources, a lot more books, et cetera. So I did that. And then last year, I studied Cantonese on and off for about nine months. I made a video on this, actually. It's actually blowing up in Hong Kong at the moment. It's got around mm. 150,000 views. So I studied Cantonese in secret by myself. I didn't tell my dad. And then at the end of nine months, I called him up on Skype and I said, I'm going to speak to you in Cantonese. And we wow. had our first ever conversation in Cantonese. And I put this all on YouTube. Well, well, tell me about it. What was that like? So my dad moved to England when he was 11 years old. So when you speak to him, you think he's from England. So talking to him, I was just incredibly nervous. Like it, it brought me back to when I first learned Mandarin and you learned are ordering coffee for the first time ever in Chinese. And yeah, he's so nervous, you know, speaking another language is one of the hardest things at the beginning.
0: How did your father react when you spoke to him in Cantonese?
2: I think he was shocked. I think he was surprised we were even able to have a conversation. He knows I'm in Taiwan. I don't know anyone here who speaks Cantonese. He had a smile on his face and he was just like, okay, and then he just continued talking with me. And then I asked him, you know, what do you think? And he was like, I genuinely didn't think you'd be able to have any sort of conversation. Here we are. You studied Cantonese, another language, which they don't speak in Taiwan, to a sort of basic conversational level. And he was just really happy, I think.
0: How did you feel about that?
2: I felt so relieved. It's one of those things where I'm like, can I actually do this? And I think a lot of people, when they're learning languages, they have these points where they want to give up or they think, Yeah, this isn't for me. And especially for someone with the hearing loss. Like, why do I keep putting myself through these things that require good hearing? You know, it's trying to, like, a person who's almost blind trying to learn how to paint art or... But there's people, you know. I see people who do rock climbing with one arm or there's that skateboarder guy who's blind and he does, like, ollies and grind rails. And I look at these people and I'm like, they wanted it. They didn't see their disability as a reason not to do it. So I thought, you know, I can do the same thing. Why not?
0: You know, you started out the story, really, about your parents were never sure if you were ever going to be able to really speak English. Exactly. And then for one day, decades later, there you are speaking to your father in Cantonese in Mm. his native tongue. I, I can only imagine what he must have been feeling at that
2: time. I'm sure he's pretty surprised. You know, Asian people don't always express exactly what they're thinking, but you can see it in his eyes. Mm.
0: And it's on video, right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm so
2: happy it's on video because I I watch that back every so often and it just, it makes me happy. So
0: what's next for you, James? You know, you're 32, you're you're living here in Taiwan, and you have a great level of proficiency in Chinese, but what, what are you looking at next for you?
2: I guess, although my Chinese is okay, because of my hearing, I still find it quite difficult to watch TV shows. Luckily, there's Chinese subtitles, but my reading speed is so slow. How fast you read in Chinese compared to your native language is worlds apart. And especially for me, again, I keep mentioning, but I'm profoundly deaf. So when I watch TV in English, I use English subtitles. It's just so much easier for me. If I don't have English subtitles, I probably only catch 25% of what's actually been spoken on TV. So my reading speed compared to normal people is way faster in English. So then you're comparing this very, very fast English reading speed I have to this very, very slow Chinese reading speed I have. And it's so frustrating.
0: <laughs> you're not alone. Reading speed's is the big deal, you know, mm. but you got to get stuff at your levels. Obviously, graded readers are graded Readers are excellent, but there's also a exactly. lot of other materials out there. But just gather and read. Yeah. And yeah reading yeah. speed is one of the best indicators of fluency. And for you and for anyone listening, usually I usually recommend a target of about 120 words per minute in English is good. There's not a lot of research on the Chinese side for L2 learners, but I think it'll be about the same. So 120 characters a minute would be a decent reading speed. It's not like super fast, but it's good.
2: So right now I'm kind of focusing more on writing because I feel if you can write characters, you can recognize them faster, which leads to a faster reading speed. That's just my theory.
0: Well, it can. You can learn like the little details of the characters, it helps, but you can also get that from reading too, just enough repetition.
2: I feel like in Chinese, it's really important to set goals. So my first Chinese goal was to do the four books, the four semesters of learning Chinese here, which I did. And then recently, I was on a Taiwanese TV show speaking oh. Chinese.
0: Wow. Tell us about that.
2: So the topic of the TV show was foreigners in Taiwan doing sort of special jobs. So I was on there because I was teaching parkour in Taiwan, which is unheard of probably most of the world to be honest not just taiwan it's quite special yeah i think so and so one of my goals for a while was to go on one of these tv shows speak in chinese because i felt like if i was able to do that then my chinese has hit a level where it's good enough to be on national tv right mm-hmm. so when i got the offer and i was like yeah i want to do it but they tell you like two days before they want to shoot
1: oh
0: no really? they don't give you a lot
2: of time one guy on the show he got told that day, I think. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, thanks for the prior notice. <laughs> yeah, right. So they tell you, you know, we, we want you to talk about this. Can you write up a summary of what you want to speak about? Send it to us, and then we'll pick out the bits that we want you to talk about. So I arrived at the studio at 7 p.m., I think it was. It was quite late. And the annoying thing was I felt this, like, a sore throat coming on. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get sick. And then they told me the shooting got delayed till 9 p.m. So then I was like, feeling sick, a little bit tired, obviously very, very nervous. And I walked into like the makeup room, I guess it's called, and there was maybe like 20 or 30 foreigners there, all speaking Chinese to each other, just oh, having wow. conversations. Because we're all from different countries, right? There's people oh. who don't speak English, there's people who don't speak Japanese, and, and what. So mm-hmm. Chinese is the communal language, if you like. Wow. So all these foreigners just speaking awesome Chinese to each other, joking, laughing. I'm like, my Chinese isn't good enough. Why am I here? (laughs) I don't belong. (laughs) And I saw this guy. And I don't know if you know the band called Transition. So one of the guys from the band was there. Oh, great. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, you're the guy from that band, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm the drummer. My name's Josh, blah, blah, blah. And he was also from England. So I just uh, had a quiet conversation with him. And I was like, you know, What do I do if they say something to me and I don't understand? Like, how is it going to work and and blah, blah, blah. Because the people who were doing the show didn't really explain too much about what was going on. They were super busy. Mm -hmm. So he managed to calm my nerves a little bit. And, you know, you get on the show, you've got this chair. They give you a name badge with your name. They've got your photo, how long you've been in Taiwan. And so they asked me about teaching parkour in Taiwan, what parkour is. They showed my videos. Everyone clapped. They understood me and, and I was really happy with that. There was one time where the the host asked me a question and I was like, what, what, what? And they asked me something like, can people of all ages do parkour? And I didn't really catch what she said. And the guy sitting next to me basically repeated what they said. And, you Mm. know, they can edit it, right? You watch the show, it looks like I understood them perfectly. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so it wasn't perfect. And the next day I completely lost my voice. Oh wow! I I was pretty sick, but I was happy I did it, and I was happy I hit one of my goals. So I think for anyone who's listening, you need goals in Chinese. Finish this book, speak to this person. Like when I was learning Cantonese, speaking to my dad was the ultimate goal, right? That's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you learning whatever you're learning.
0: James, if you could go back and you could do anything differently, what would you do differently?
2: I would have learned another language first. I feel like from an English speaker straight into Chinese, there are a lot of things that just don't translate. And again, you said in one of your previous podcasts about mm. mm-hmm. Nietzsche Balomei or Sian Those mm-hmm. sort of things that don't translate directly. And to start off with, that really bugged me. Mm-hmm. And my brain was really having a hard time going, Well, why can't I say that? In English we'll say this place is busy, right? Which means mm-hmm. there's a lot of people. In Chinese, you can't say this. You can't say, It doesn't translate. People can be busy, but places can't be busy.
0: You could say it's like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that really bugged me to start off with. And I feel like that kind of slowed me down because I was so fit states on why certain things wouldn't work in Chinese and why I couldn't just directly translate from English. So I feel like if I'd learned, maybe not even to a good level, but I just like, had a a basic understanding of other languages for example like you said spanish i feel i would have learned that a little bit easier and it would have helped me understand other languages don't work the same as english and there are nuances and there's just different things that happen in languages so that when eventually i did learn chinese it would be a smoother transition for me
0: Mm. i think what you're getting at it's that concept of learning how to learn a language right exactly Exactly. Well, James, I think that is amazing. I really appreciate you sharing the story. It's just really inspiring. And at the end of the day, you can learn Chinese.
2: You definitely can. You
0: have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, builder, quilter, kicker, swimmer, sprinter, climber, and that one gal named Shanna. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at MandarinCompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Kuo at SupChina, and our interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. And I'd like to thank our guest interview, James Wong, and of course, thanks to my co host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passer. See you next time.